Welcome to another episode of the Sonic Sketchbooks podcast. I'm your host, Gary Warner. Forced audience, the dialectic process of change, another transport to sleep, lament of the lion killers, today the world, pace of erosion, rig for silent running, running around in Redcomb House. Titles of cassette-recorded soundworks I made in the 1970s and 80s. And this episode is an ethereal visitation from that time by the airing of a small selection of sonic explorations I made then using cassette tape recorders, working alone in sharehouse rooms or with collaborators in lounge rooms, practice rooms, galleries, abandoned buildings and the street. The mixtape begins with a recording made with artist John Nixon after hours upstairs in Brisbane's Institute of Modern Art, then in Eagle Street. This is in 1981. John was the new director up from Melbourne where he'd established his legendary art projects gallery. He invited me to work as a gallery assistant and as technical assistant for his various film, tape and photography projects. I'd be making experimental sound works for some time prior, using cassette recorders, found objects and musical instruments, and played in various underground bands. I had a vintage French soprano saxophone that I played badly, but well enough it seemed for the independent punk and post-punk music scenes of the day. This first track is titled Across a Distance. Uh, The vocals written or adapted from Russian futurist poetry of Mayakovsky and Klebnikov and sung by John. The saxophone played by me and other instruments played by John and percussionist Claire McKenna. Uh, John would bring uh, prepared cassette tapes he'd recorded sounds onto already and we'd set them playing and then play along live with the playback and record the maelstrom of sound with another cassette recorder live in one take, always. We named the group The Black Spots and John published this track across a distance on his anti-music sampler on London-based Bill Furlonger's Uh, audio arts series of cassette releases. Under John's direction I compiled the various tracks from the different anti-music collaborators to prepare the master for that project. The series including the anti-music sampler can be listened to online today at the Tate's website. Following Across a Distance are excerpts from a long series of one-off cassette sound works I made in Brisbane and Sydney where I've lived since the early 80s. One of the people I spent a lot of time with exploring sound was Brisbane artist and digital media old-timer Adam Walter. Adam and I started using cassette recording while in high school together and track two is a sample of this uh, youthful anarchy and he'd studied computer programming at the University of Queensland, I I believe uh, beginning with punch card programming and was adept at creating unusual artist software for the generation of cryptic computer graphics, animations and experimental music. And he and uh, sound art pioneer academician Nick Zerberg were great friends whilst Nick lived in Brisbane working at Griffith University. And Adam coaxed unusual possibilities from the Amiga computer. And when visiting Brisbane, I'd always look at his latest works and cajole him to help me out with different uh, digital media ideas. And we collaborated on a project at his uh, commercial gallery, Bellis Gallery, uh, on a Saturday afternoon project called Music for Three Computers. Various of the tracks here include samples of his early experiments with computer music overlaid with my early play with text-to-speech synthesis um, using fragments of text I'd collected from magazines like Scientific American, uh, New Scientist, Art Forum, Art International and others. 
and another long-time collaborator heard on various tracks is Brisbane artist Eugene Carchizio, a fellow explorer of sound who continues to make and release beautiful enigmatic offerings of minimal means. Clearly I could talk for far too long about each of these tracks. Better to offer them up without too much prefiguring, other than to say on re-listening to the recordings after many decades, it strikes me that the kinds of sounds I found of interest then remain much the same 40 years on, as listeners to this podcast will also perhaps recognise.
Christine, I'm sorry, Christine, I'm sorry, Christine. I'm
Nuclear weapon will be equipped with devices that suppress, convert, and direct energy, enabling the explosive energies to be transformed into microwaves that are then concentrated on targets. Detonated in space, nuclear weapons could radiate anthocyanic X rays in all directions. Or, anthocyanic X rays in a particular direction. High energy X rays striking the upper part of the atmosphere cause electrons to be ejected from their molecules. Such a cascade is equivalent to a huge surge of electric current heating the atmosphere to higher temperatures, radiating visible light and infrared. Microwaves can readily penetrate the atmosphere and could reach the surface of the Earth from space. Electronic and electrical equipment is highly susceptible to disruption or permanent damage from microwave fluence. Gamma rays may be directed to targets in the upper atmosphere, inducing electric field strength on the target surface in the order of one million volts per meter, and breaking everything. The ionized weapon debris produced by a nuclear explosion above the atmosphere, but within the Earth's magnetic field, could produce a powerful pulse of long-wavelength electromagnetic radiation. The more familiar effects of the thermonuclear bang, neutron emission, air blast, and incendiary destruction may also be enhanced to increase their deadly magnitude. Targets in space could be disabled by microwave beams upward. The kinetic energy of subsurface bursts will produce proton shock waves through the surrounding medium. Also, the medium is quickly superheated, producing a rapidly expanding fireball of death. Surface subsurface or very low altitude explosions fling huge quantities of dust, crater debris, artificial structures, or water into the air, causing considerable destruction. Much of this material will be rendered radioactive, thereby severely contaminating extensive areas through fallout. The amount and distribution of fallout 
Third be controlled, depending on the materials chosen to encase the weapon. The blast of a subterranean explosion could conceivably propel projectiles through a cannon barrel and on into space. The fragmentation of such a projectile into chunks or droplets would be a highly effective weapon for destroying satellites or missiles in space.
Thanks for listening. You can find a track list and links to John Nixon's and Eugene Carchisio's work and find out more about the podcast in the episode guide at sonicsketchbooks.net. This is episode 48.